blast of Angelique Kidzo there, performing at the World Economic Forum's opening concert. For over 40 years, she spread the music of Africa far and wide, picking up five Grammy Awards along the way, and taking up the baton as an advocate for girls' education and the importance of spreading schooling across her native continent. Born in Benin, West Africa, this singer-songwriter rose to fame in Paris, where she settled in the 1980s after a coup d'etat and political crisis. She's a musical globetrotter who sings in French and English, and she doesn't like the term world music. So much of the popular music we listen to, she says, has roots in Africa and its rhythms. As a UNICEF and Oxfam Goodwill ambassador, she's interested in helping those at the sharp end of power, and she doesn't hold back. I mean, when the European people migrate to Africa, Nobody tell them you, you're too many. You have to go back. It's always on our side that we are not welcome. Welcome to Power Play, Politico's interview podcast, where we talk to some of the world's most influential people on either side of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and let's welcome Angelique Kidzo to Power Play. Hi there, Angelique. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> The work that you do as a goodwill ambassador for UNICEF and as an advocate for girls' education and for humanitarian aid more broadly is so much part of your life as a performer and as an advocate, especially so in Africa. How do you assess how this year has been? We're post-COVID, but we are in a stressed situation in many areas of the world. How is your kind of optimism dial at the moment? My optimism is always there because if you lose it and lose hope, what's the point of living? And you will think that after the pandemic, we're going to come out of it and feeling that we need to get together within our shared humanity. And actually, the world starts start unraveling in rather a very dramatic way. And the question I have for me is how do we get here? What is the trigger of all the things that is happening? Is this really the pandemic or it was already in the pipeline before the pandemic put a little bit of a stop to it? I don't know. I don't know where to start, but I keep my optimism up because if I don't have music, I think I won't be here talking with you guys because the world is becoming a very gloomy place. But yet within that gloomy place, there's a lot of hope. There's a lot of good things that is happening, but we need to focus on the good as, as much as the bad. If we keep our focus on the bad, we're going to disappear. And that's something we have to balance both. We have to. Do you think the conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine are distracting leaders from focusing on problems in Africa when you're at meetings like Davos recently or going around the world? Do you find that there is a focus of leaders. A lot of people invite you as a kind of cultural and aid advocate, but do you, do you get the sense that their bandwidth is, is too stretched? I think that uh, those two conflicts are stretching the ability of us to fix problems. We've been somehow, I would say the leaders of this world, have been somehow in their own bubble and not seeing what was going to happen in the world and thinking that everybody's going to be immune of anything that happened anywhere in the world. And we, we forgot in the glimpse of a moment 
that we are all interlocked. That what happens somewhere is going to have impact on everybody. And of course, when it comes to my continent, people are more interested in the resources of my continent than the future of the youth in Africa. And it's something that's going to become more impossible to avoid if we ought to live on a planet where we give every citizen equal chance to have a better life. So I think that we Africans, we have to start thinking about how we solve our own problems without being dragged into the problem of the rest of the world. We need to focus on how we create jobs for the youth in our countries, what we're going to put in place as a society, what are the plans for um, building more, better roads, hospitals, good school, and financial literacy for women, because women have a different way of investing, and create a society where our young youngsters want to live instead of going out to find something that they will not find anywhere else. And that we should be our priority in Africa. One way, of course, that Africa is interlinked with Europe and beyond is through migration and migration trends, which have caused a lot of stresses and a lot of arguments about how best to go about that and deal with the consequences. And one trend that we're seeing is wealthy countries seeking to use some African states to process asylum claims that the UK negotiating with Rwanda to process asylum seekers, some of whom may have come from Africa in the first place. What's your view on that? Well, any African country that accepts that kind of deal is a criminal state for me. You cannot do that. Why should we deal with the problem of the UK? If the rich country have treated the African country better, if from the get-go, African country has been helped to develop, not just to be the place where anyone in the, in the wealthy country just go and rip off whatever they want to rip off, with, of course, the, the, the complicity of the leaders of Africa. The problem we have with the youth today is that with Internet, they know exactly what is going on in Africa. And my fear for me as an African person and as a mother is the day we lose them completely and they go on wars, war mode. Nothing can stop them. Nothing will stop those youth to break everything down. And it's going to affect not only African continent, but the whole economical system. But Joe, I just want to stick with this Rwanda plan, so-called. Sounds like you know, instinctively you don't like the sound of it. And I just wanted to sort of check in on why. Is it because you think it's fundamentally exploitative or because it's Rwanda and you have kind of problems there no. with Paul Kagame's no. leadership? No, no, I don't have anything. It's not about leadership of Kagame or what. Why the people are coming to the UK? Why? Do the leaders in the UK, do they ask those people where they come from and the reason why they're living? But you have to solve the asylum problem if you see it as a problem. Why are you sending them back to Africa? I mean, when the European people migrate to Africa, nobody tells them you're too many. You have to go back. It's always on our side that we are not welcome. But when it comes to take our wealth and our resources away, oh, we don't count. It has been that kind of dichotomy, that kind of coldness. We take what we need to develop our economy. We don't care how many children are born with a death sentence on their back because they are born in Africa. 
How can we say we love our children and we decide that the UK children have more rights than the, any, any child in Africa? And that's what we have been creating for so many years, for the last 60 years since the independence. Uh, I don't even want to say independence because we have never been independent at all. It's only one way. People take from Africa and never build something back. And if a leader in Africa doesn't accept that fact and want to do something for their people, that person disappears. They kill that person or that person is never in, po in power. So we have all of us have to sit back and take our responsibility. The leaders in Africa have responsibilities, but the leaders of the rich country to have responsibilities because they're enabler of the poverty that is in Africa. Africa is the richest continent on the planet. And not one economist, not one politician have been able to explain to me how such a rich continent has the largest population of poor people on the planet. I, I need to understand. I'm just going to put the, the, the other angle, if you were, say, Rishi Sunak with the Rwanda policy in the UK. I think the German leader Olaf Scholz, the, the chancellor in Germany, has been on what looked rather like a fact-finding uh, trip to Africa to look at potential places where you could process what we would call irregular asylum claims, the ones that are not coming through official routes, closer to the country of origin under certain conditions. And when you say, well, what do these countries get out of it? Of course, what they get out of it is a financial deal and a kind of partnership with the West. For me, it's another way of slavery. You're paying people to, I mean, we don't know what's going to happen. The rich country are giving money and those people that they're going to somehow uh, send back to their country, you don't know what's going to happen to them. How do you control what happened in, the, in, in that African country? The fate of those people that you send back how do you control that? Once the money, money is in the hand of any the, the country you give it to, you're sending people in a, in, in a wild, wild, wild search? What is that? Is it slavery? Let's talk it. Let's talk about it. African people need, African youth need to live the same life as any youth in the world. Until we provide assistance to the African countries to have policy in place, to create jobs, to have good education system, good health system, and a good everything that is needed to develop their country for the children, the youth to stay in their country, we cannot fix immigration. And we will never fix immigration or in America or, or in Europe if the rich country don't take their own responsibility in that regard. So in short, you would advise Rishi Sunak to drop the Rwanda policy? Yeah. Pure, pure and simple. Why? People that come to UK, they don't come from Rwanda. They come from all different parts of Africa. Why don't we look at the country where they come from and decide with the country where they come from, send them to where they come from? Why are you sending them somewhere? Where, how the Well, you can't send them back to a country they're seeking asylum from. And the danger is they take the small boats and, and drown in the English Channel. You know, that, that's, that's the problem he's trying to solve. Yes, but the, the, the people, why people are so desperate? When you talk to mothers in Africa... I mean, I've spoke, I spoke to some mothers say, and they will sell the jewelry because they can't. I mean, you know how humiliating it is for a parent to say, I can't feed my child. I can't send my child to school. The only thing that I think they can give him hope is for me to sell my jewelry and, and buy him a way to get into that boat. And knowing, and she will tell you that my, my child have a chance of dying. You, you know how painful that is? It's horrible. That's what we're facing. And that's what have to stop. And you'll hear more from Anjali Kidzo on the nexus between pop and politics and some of the questions that throws up after this.
You once said to me, and I think you will remember the context to, to remind us that when you were traveling uh, in, I don't know whether this was in your native country, in Benin or, or elsewhere in Africa, that you saw little boys or young boys on street corners who should be in school. And that what the West failed to see was that in the worst cases and in the most stressed states, those same children would have guns in their hands in the future. And we kind of missed the point. I mean, the, the thing that happened is that you walked into places in Africa and you wonder why the world is oblivious of the violence that is boiling because we didn't pay attention to it. We are eager to sell weapons, small weapons, everywhere in the world. And we, we just don't understand that if we do not put our children to school and we don't help them have a perspective of future to dream for something bigger, they end up in the hands of the jihadist group. And then we start asking our questions. And then instead of trying to understand how those groups get their hands on those weapons, how can we stop that? We are in punishment. We don't go to the root cause of why those youth is taken by those jihadists. Just to be specific, what countries are you thinking about here? I'm talking about all the countries in the Sahel right now. You know, all, how do we get so many weapons in the hands of non-military people? How do we sit down and sell weapons without having accountability or trustability of those guns? I remember I had a campaign with Oxfam a couple of years ago with Will I Am, where we were campaigning for the small arms to be tagged in a way that we can understand the origin where they come from and where they end up to, to be able to stop those, those weapons to go around. And how we end up with regular people shooting or stabbing people in the street. Where do we go wrong? The society is changing, and we are still using the methods 30 years back. And our policies hasn't changed to match the challenge of technology, of our society evolving, and the easiness to get access to weapons today. I mean, it's something that is really... I'm not a politician, but I'm like, if you're a politician, what will you do to avoid unnecessary death by controlling the weapon in the society, period? How do we take care of people with mental health? And the pandemic has put shed a light on mental health, yet there's no response for it. We both have an interest in education and its funding, public education systems, public-private partnerships and all of that around the developing world and the ability to have enough supply in quality of education to at least begin to offset some of the, the problems that you've just uh, laid out. How is, is that going? Because what I hear from philanthropists is that, to put it crudely, they're a bit off education. You know, they have other concerns. There were big campaigns around health or big campaigns around uh, climate change. And it's a bit of a moving dial and the education maybe can kind of fall out of the front line. You're one of the most prominent advocates for this, particularly uh, in the African continent. Do you think I'm being too pessimistic uh, on this funding question? No, I mean, the thing is, if we drop the bottle in education, everything that we do will fall. 
nothing will succeed. Because when people are educated, when you're telling people about climate change, especially in poor countries, they tell you it's a topic of the rich countries. We are here, we survive. They don't leave. Everybody is in survival mode. How do you put food on the table? And somebody telling, don't use wood. And what you are offering for that family to be able to feed the, fa- the, the children. So we just take everything. Something come, we just walk on that wagon and leave the other wagon hanging. There's not one thing in the philanthropy world that is not linked to the other. It's a tapestry. You take one thread out, the whole tapestry before there's hole in it. And what we are facing, and more and more now also, is stunting is on the rise, which means the workforce in the next 50 years is going to be stunted people. How do you create any economy that survives? The malnutrition of a mother that carries a baby impacts the baby when the baby is born. We have a window of 24 months to turn that baby's brain to normal by giving that child nutrient that his brain, his or her brain needs to develop. And if we don't pay attention, for me, it's a crucial policy to put in place everywhere. Because stunting is not only the pro- a problem in Africa, it's coming in here. You have stunting in America, in, in the very poorest area in America. Even in Europe, you have stunting. So we've looked down on stunting in Africa, thinking that in Europe, it's not going to be our problem. It's going to be our problem. That's what I said before. We are all interlocked. If you don't do something where it happens, it comes to your doorstep. So the philanthropy world should not be doing politics, should not be involved in doing politics. You have to be a, a, a part of the philanthropy work they have to have, lobbies, political lobbies, to lobby for the right of what we're doing for that to be achieved, like education, good health care, good water system, and all the things that we need for developing countries or developed country to have at hand that is a, a human right for every single citizen. The, and it's going to be more, more efficient if we have philanthropists that have um, a 360 vision about what we are doing. How do we link when somebody's working on nutrition, somebody's working on education, uh, uh, gender equality, uh, sexual abuse, all of those things that we work, they are not in pockets, they are together. I feel I should talk to you about other aspects of your work while I've got you here. One of the things I wanted to, to talk about is the way that you pack out concert halls and venues across the world. You won five Grammy Awards. Where, where do you keep them, by the way? Are they in the bathroom or where do you put them? <laughs> I still have some shelves. <laughs> you want a few more, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I want, I want more. I want more. I'll, I'll build the shelf. I'll find a room for it. Did you hear that, judges? Angelique's got a little space um, at home. Um, you have said that people try to pigeonhole African musicians. And I wondered what you meant by that, particularly in the context of today, when we see a much more kind of diverse music scene, when, and you may not like this word, and you can tell me if you don't, that when it does feel like there's just a more global approach or globalised approach to music, do you still feel pigeonholed? No, because the thing has changed. When, when, when I started, we were pigeonholed. Our, our category was the ghetto category called world music. Everything you just put in it is garbage. Oh, this is not in English. This is not in French, not Spanish. Or, oh, garbage. And that's it. And, but now things are changing because the young generation of African musicians, they don't wait for no record company before they, are, they can be a star in a, in a clap of a finger because of internet. They put their stuff out there 
and they can stream and get their own money in their own pocket. So the thing is, and I've been saying this, that the day the African artists going to have a means to put their money music out there with no one telling them what to do, well, it's going to be a wave of change. And that's what we are seeing today. So what do you think about, you've, you've been in this business a while, I think we're heading for, what, 40 years? Yep, right. more, a little bit more. <laughs> 40 years plus. Um, yeah. When you look back, when you look back at the landmarks of the engagements of Western cultural figures with African countries uh, in music, and I'm thinking here of the Paul Simon Graceland tour that was sort of, got both a, a claim, it got bouquets and brickbats, let's say, about the way that it, it approached that. For some people, it was what we'd now call cultural appropriation. It broke a cultural boycott that was widely supported uh, on the apartheid regime. And at the same time, it was part of bringing African music, African traditions and rhythms and skills to the wider audience. When you look back on that, what do you think? And has your view changed from then? No, me, my view has always been that there's no cultural appropriation. They are cultural expansion. Culture speaks for people. There's no society without culture. We travel. Our music travel. African music is at the center of every music. Let's face it. There's not one bit of music where you don't have Africa in it. So as an African person, anyone that wants to do any music with African people, let's do it in respect of one another and acknowledging what we bring to the table. Because the culture that doesn't mix with other, that doesn't expand, disappear. So where do you stand then on performing in countries that are actively involved in conflict? Would you perform in Israel at the moment when, in situations where we know that the decision to perform or not to perform can be seen as politically motivated or at least have a, a, a tinge of support from one side or another? The time we live in it doesn't even permit that. Because we are living in a time where you can't say nothing, you can't do nothing, there's no consensus, consensus on anything. So how will you go somewhere when everything is such in the air, when you don't know who's what, what is what? We've made dialogue pretty much impossible. But hang on, but saying, are there countries music, or situations in which you wouldn't Oh, I've been, I've been. I've been to Zimbabwe when it was Mugabe. And I don't care, I'll go and play music for people because that's what gives them the strength to stand against the abuse of their government. I don't have any problem with that. I mean, music has always been that vehicle that helped break gridlock. I use it for that. We always have a last question on this podcast, which I'm going to adapt for you because of your musical band. We would like to know who you would like to hear come on Power Play and do this interview that, that you've just very kindly done with us. But I'm also going to ask you for a couple of things for our playlist, uh, whether we're oh, yeah, yeah. travelling around uh, the, oh, yeah, the world yeah. or just on our regular commute into our offices or walking the dog. Angelique, it's just playlist tips for Politico. Well, I'll say we can start. One of the things that I want to play first is War is Over from John Lennon. It's timely because what have we done? We're still at war in the 21st century. We'll start with that. And I would like to play some young African artists, of course. I'll start with Yemialade Shekere that we did together. And Bonaboy, of course, Rema, Miriam Makeba, Annie Lennox. Um, this is a good playlist. Brandy Carlyle. And what are we going to listen to from you? 
It's uh, now we're going to ask me, you. I mean, this is like asking any, you to murder your darlings. I mean, but you're going to have to choose a song, well, aren't you? Any, anything you want from me, it's okay. I I, I like it. And uh, you two, uh, Peter Gabriel, Yusundur, and the list can go on and on and on. Ira Star is a young artist from Nigeria that uh, was born in Benin. She's really good. You have another one called Tyler from South Africa. The young girls are doing stuff, man, and I. I can't wait to have more cohort of young superstar from Africa. I'm waiting for it. And who should we have as guest on Powerplay to go through this grueling interview? Ay, ay, ay. Stevie Wonder? That could be great. Uh-huh. So we, we write to Stevie Wonder and we say, Angelique wants to hear you on Powerplay. That's it's a deal? It. Yes. It's a great deal. You're, you're hired as a booker on top, okay. of, your, on top right. of your many other roles. All right. Thanks I mean, so much, Angelique. Oh, welcome. <laughs> we can go on and on and on. That's all from this week's edition of Power Play. If you'd like to get all of the episodes when they publish, go ahead and follow Power Play from Politico wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms. The producer in London is Peter Snowden and the executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. I'm Anne McElvoy and thank you for listening.